It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 251 for July 17th, 2011. Recorded July 14th. Oh, look at that poor picture. Is there an image doctor in the house? Alien Skin's Image Doctor 2 is designed to fix problems with images. In general, the plug-in for Photoshop and other applications that use the Photoshop standard accomplishes everything it claims to. But advances made by Adobe in the built-in Photoshop features might contraindicate your employment of this doctor. So let's investigate what that means in plain English. As with most Alien Skin applications, you'll start with a dual screen, before-after view, left-right, top-bottom, diagonal, or the whole image before and after. And you also have the ability to view the full image, zoom in on part of the image, view at 100% enlargement, or enlarge beyond 100% to see fine details. You also can change each of the individual settings used by the specific filter that you select. And Image Doctor offers the following specialties. JPEG Repair, Smart Fill, Dust and Scratch Remover, which is kind of a variant of Smart Fill, Blemish Concealer, and Skin Softener. So I started with an old, low-resolution JPEG that I found on my hard drive. It's from sometime before 1990. The first image that you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows the default settings. I needed to modify the deblocking and blur settings to improve the overall image. Old JPEG images from cameras such as the deservedly much maligned Sony Mavica that I seem to be mentioning a lot in recent weeks will never be good no matter what you do, but Image Doctor can make them less bad. You have options for a fairly high-quality image, a medium-quality image, and a low-quality image. Starting with the default settings for a low-quality image increases the deblocking value dramatically. So you'll see a full-size image on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and it is what I would call a bit crunchy. The afterimage, although not as sharp, has lost the objectionable crunchiness that's apparent in the original. Well, next I decided to try a grade school photo of my father-in-law. The image has several scratches and blemishes. I circled those in the image that you'll see on the website. Image Doctor 2 took care of the three problems that I noted, uh, but then I noticed another mark, a blemish, on my father-in-law's forehead. It's not his blemish, it was a speck on the image itself, and that was quick work for Image Doctor 2. I have two copies of this image, and the other copy doesn't have any physical damage, but the one I was looking at for this report does. There's some physical damage to the image on his hands. Nonetheless, I thought it would be worthwhile to see what Image Doctor could do with that physical damage on the image. And it actually did a remarkable job of fixing the problems. There are still some areas that would need additional attention, but this is an astonishing improvement over the original. And I've provided some other examples that came from Alien Skin. Although cleaning blemishes is something that Photoshop can accomplish on its own, Alien Skin's approach makes the process easier and faster. If you're a portrait photographer, this would be a very useful capability. And when we look at people, we generally ignore such things as shine on a forehead or on a cheek. 
You'll see the example again on the TechBiter Worldwide website. What we see is more like the image on the right, the corrected image. Alien Skin's Image Doctor does an outstanding job of correcting and controlling shine and glare. That'd be really useful for my head, too. I have a head with very little hair. Next image, well, here's a side view of a lady. She has a tattoo on her arm. Mom probably loves the photo, hates the tat. A small operation by Image Doctor removes the tattoo. Now, this could easily be achieved by Photoshop's content-aware fill feature. How about correcting scratches and dust spots? Well, that's also something that Photoshop can accomplish on its own, but Image Doctor does a very good job. The bottom line on Image Doctor 2 from Alien Skin, four cats, the features are somewhat overshadowed by Photoshop. If you're using the current version, CS 5.1 of Photoshop, or even the previous CS 4 version, Image Doctor brings little to the operating room, unless you're a portrait photographer. But if you're still using an earlier version of Photoshop or a less capable program, such as Corel Photo Paint, you will add some impressive new features. It'll be interesting to see what Alien Skin software does with Image Doctor 3, which I would expect sometime within the next year. For more information, visit the Alien Skin website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I recently wrote an article called How to Keep Website Visitors from Returning Ever. Although TechBiter Worldwide isn't a website or a podcast for website designers, it does reach a lot of people who create websites in the small office, home office market segment. So I thought that this might be an interesting article for use here on TechBiter Worldwide. There is no single right way to design a website because every website is different and every website is designed to serve a different audience. But many ways exist to design a website badly. So I put together a list that I'd like you to consider as ways to annoy visitors and ensure that they will never come back. Now, nobody intentionally creates a bad website, but it's easy to do. The first rule to keep in mind is never do something just because you can do something. If you're running a humor site, then people will come to the site for humor. Otherwise, they're not looking for funny business. You may know I'm a fairly political person. And I have found out myself that when I inject political comments into a technology website, it annoys people. So I try to avoid doing that. Think you can lie about something or fib or obfuscate? Well, think again. Maybe you'll fool some of the people once, but long-term relationships aren't built on prevarications. So here's my short list of errors that are easy to make, but also fairly easy to avoid. They're usually things that seemed like a good idea at the time. They are, however, guaranteed not to make friends or impress your visitors. Create a bloated site that takes 30 seconds to load. Various studies have suggested that website visitors give your site not a very long time. Some people say 3 seconds, some say 8, some say 12. Pick a number, doesn't matter. It's a short period of time. And within that period of time, you have to prove to them that your site is worth viewing. If after 15 seconds your site is still loading, you're going to lose a lot of visitors. I offer, as an example, a website from Yale University. Even worse, it is from Yale's art school. I have no clue what the website is trying to communicate. Do you? Here's something else to avoid. Force visitors to endure a 60-second flash presentation. 
If you have to create a flash entry page, and please don't, but if you absolutely must, at least give visitors an option to skip it. How about auto-playing music or video and making it replay every time the visitor returns to the home page? Now, maybe this was cool 15 years ago, but it is no longer cool. And, by the way, here's a hint. It wasn't cool 15 years ago, either. If you have a reason to offer audio or video, as this site does, then let the visitor choose to play it. If you must play audio or video the first time a visitor arrives, you absolutely must. You just can't keep yourself from doing it. Then at least set a cookie so that it won't play again when the same visitor lands on the home page a second time. Here's a good one. Make the interface confusing. A site I recently visited includes a list of projects, and beside each project a symbol was displayed. Black pentagons, green triangles, red octagons, silver diamonds, brown squares, blue circles, and yellow stars. I had no idea what they meant, and I was trying to read some meaning into the shapes. I checked with the site owner. As it turns out, the shapes themselves were meaningless. They were just there for variety. It was the color that was significant. The symbols weren't explained. There was no key anywhere on the page. One of Vincent Flanders' favorites, Create Mystery Meat Navigation. Vince Flanders is the author of Websites That Suck. He's referring specifically to unlabeled graphics that are used for navigation, simply because the designer thought the graphics were cool. People expect links to look like links. They expect navigation tools to have some explicit meaning. So don't be clever. I have an example of this on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Do you have any idea what clicking anywhere on the site might do? You'll have to check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see that. How about forcing me to register before I can see more than the home page? If the information you have is something that I really want to see, I might register but I probably won't give you my real name, and I probably won't give you any other accurate information either. I might even be rude. You may have a newsletter that I would enjoy, but let me decide to request it after I wander around the site for a while. Don't force me to do it before you let me in. Another favorite. Show me a menu with 147 choices. More is not better. Focus. Create a menu that anybody can understand. Start with the major choices that have to be there. Products, services, about, and contact. And have maybe one level of options. If you need more than that, you need a different kind of navigation. One that allows visitors to search for what they're seeking. Make the site cluttered. Headlines in blue, yellow starbursts everywhere, text in a dozen typefaces and sizes, a rainbow of colors... The goal is to communicate, not to overwhelm. If ever a case existed for the less is more school of thought, this is it. In the early days of desktop typesetting, this kind of thing was referred to as ransom note publishing. One of my biggest pet peeves, omit contact information. If your site sells something, then tell me who you are and tell me where you are. I want a physical address. Street, city, state, postal code. Give me your phone number. Give me your email address. If you won't tell me where you are, you won't get my business. And don't make this information hard to find. If you won't put it on every page, at least provide a link 
to it from every page. If you have a site that sells something, then hide information about what I would need to do if I want to return something. If your guarantees and return policies are obscure, I'm probably not going to buy from you. This is true of a lot of people, too. A 100% money-back guarantee is one of the strongest offers you can make. If you can make that offer, do. If you can't, at least tell me what your terms are. You want me to leave? Well, then play games with security. If you tell me your site is secure, then I'd better see HTTPS in the address, and my browser had better tell me that the connection is encrypted. If you display trust or security symbols, such as those from the Better Business Bureau, and the link is really to a directory on your site, I won't be sticking around. And chances are I'll contact the organization whose mark you are misusing and report you for fraudulent use of the trademark. If you have some sort of form on your website, then when I make an error in filling it out, don't really tell me what's wrong. And while you're at it, be sure to delete all of the information on the form so that I'll have to enter it again, because I really don't have anything better to do. It's easy to miskey something on a form. Very easy. When that happens, and I have to spend a minute or more figuring out what's wrong... I might go to your competitor's website, and if I make a mistake and you blank out all the information on the forum so I have to start over, what reason do I have to stick around? This isn't exactly a website error, but it is an error. Send me an email every day after I sign up for your newsletter. Unless you're running a newspaper or some other sort of news service, there is no reason for you to contact me every day. Do that, and I'll unsubscribe before the end of the first week. And should I unsubscribe, then ignore my unsubscribe request. If I don't want your email anymore, continuing to send it to me will not predispose me to your product or service. When I tell you to stop, stop. If you don't, I will block all messages from your domain, and I might complain to your upstream service providers. Chances are you don't want that outcome. How about making it impossible for me to search your site to find what I'm looking for? People visit websites for a reason. In many cases, that reason is to find something, a product, a service, or information. If you make it impossible to find what the visitor is seeking, the visitor will leave. If you have a commercial site, then pop up a live chat window ten seconds after I arrive at your site. No, I don't want to chat with your sales representative. I'm not yet sure what you offer or whether I want to do business with you. Show a live chat link if you want, but skip the pop-ups unless you want me to leave. And if you do offer a live chat option, then please make sure someone is really available. When I click the live chat link and I'm told that, oh, I'm sorry, you have to send an email, then I'll probably just go to your competitor's website. Here's another pop-up too soon. Display a pop-up feedback survey the instant I land on your homepage. I don't yet know who you are, what you do, why I might want to deal with you. Why would I be interested in agreeing to fill out a survey? Make your website so wide that I have to scroll sideways to read it. Many people have wide screens these days. I do. But that doesn't mean that they run their browser in a widescreen mode. Ask me for far too much information. If I'm buying something from your website, you will want my billing and shipping information, name and full address for each. You will want my payment information, credit card number, billing name, expiration date, security number, and that's it. You probably don't need to know my sex, and please call it sex, not gender. 
Unless I'm buying alcohol, cigarettes, or pornography, you don't need my age. You don't need my marital status. You don't need the color of my favorite cat. Don't be nosy. For commercial sites, make it impossible to change anything added to the shopping cart. I accidentally type 11 instead of 1. Well, don't allow me to change the quantity without starting a new order. That will guarantee that I go somewhere else. And you'll be rid of me. Add fees on the final page. I've checked the quantity and price. I've provided billing and shipping information. I filled out the payment form with my credit card information. The next screen you display casually mentions that shipping for my $35 order is $70. Nope, you're not going to make a sale. You'll not make a friend either. You will earn a complaint to the Better Business Bureau and probably to your state's Consumer Protection Agency. You can avoid this by being upfront with customers. And finally, don't provide a way to retrieve a username or password. I've decided to buy from you. My shopping cart has a $750 order, but now I can't log in because uh, I've forgotten my password. Give me an easy way to solve that problem, or guess what? I'll abandon the order. It is important to consider your website from the visitor's perspective. In fact, doing so is the only way to assure that you'll get it right. When I bought a Kindle from Amazon, I expected to use it for technical documentation, but I found I was reading far more fiction and non-technical non-fiction on the device, and that I used it only occasionally for technical documentation. Then I found that I needed a copy of Microsoft's Manual of Style for technical writers. My choices were to pay more than $100 for a copy of this book, it's out of print, or about 20 bucks for a Kindle version. Wow, easy decision. I can read the book on my Kindle, but I can also read it at the office on my computer there. I can read it on the netbook I keep at the office. I can read it on my home desktop computer, and I can read it on a notebook computer that I sometimes carry around with me. I can see now that my initial thought of using the Kindle for technical documentation was a good one. But that was only part of the equation. Amazon has developed reader software that runs on Windows and Mac operating systems. Linux users can install the reader under Wine. Wine stands for Wine is not an emulator. And the application runs on many other handheld devices, such as those from Apple and Android. What this means is that you can purchase a Kindle version of a reference book, and usually the price is lower than the price of a paper book, and then you can install it on a Kindle, an office computer, an office notebook, an office netbook, a home desktop, and a notebook. I've decided to learn more about Microsoft's Visual Studio 2010, which is a development platform. It includes several languages, Visual Basic, C Sharp, C++, F Sharp, Visual Basic for Applications, and more. In other words, this is not a trivial undertaking. I decided to buy Professional Visual Studio 2010 as a Kindle book so that I can use it on my Kindle but I can also read it on my office computer, the office netbook, home desktop, and notebook. So it doesn't matter where the book is, it's always with me. If I'm really desperate, I could even read the book on my iPod Touch, but I don't expect to be that desperate. As an old curmudgeonly guy, I expect to prefer printed books, and that's generally accurate. With a printed book, I can write notes to myself in the margin. I can flip instantly from the table of contents or index to the page that addresses my current interest. I can leave post-it notes throughout the book. With the electronic version, I can do none of these. At least I can do none of them 
particularly easily. But the electronic version makes it possible for me to have the book on a Kindle and on an office computer, an office netbook, a home desktop, and a notebook. I keep mentioning that. The electronic version makes it possible for me to have access to the book wherever I am, and without carrying around what is a gigantic, heavy book. This is really a generational thing. My parents wouldn't have, and surprising to me, some members of my generation don't trust bank ATMs. A surprising number of people in my generation still won't pay bills, make purchases, or deal with their bank online. Printing a website to read it, although ecologically irresponsible, is something I understand. But as much as I like paper copies of technical documentation, I am now sold on the advantages of electronic manuals. In short circuits, Netflix is pushing video streaming. Netflix announced this week that prices are going up, and to some extent, they're going down. Those of us who subscribe to the two-DVD plan can have two physical DVDs at any time and unlimited streaming. It's probably no surprise that physical DVDs are a lot more expensive than streaming. The discs have to be warehoused, picked, packed, shipped, received, unpacked, and returned to stock. Then the process repeats. Streaming eliminates discs, it eliminates warehouses, and it eliminates the people required to pick, pack, ship, and receive. So, you can guess what the company's long-term plans are. Netflix now plans to separate unlimited DVDs by mail from unlimited streaming. The two-DVD plan costs $15 a month, and those who use that plan have two choices in the future. Plan number one, unlimited streaming with no DVDs for $8 a month. Or unlimited DVDs, two out at a time, with no streaming for $12 a month. The combined plans, quick math here, $20 a month. That's a pretty slick way to sock a 33% increase to your customers without telling them that it is a 33% increase. A 33% increase. Wow. A message from Netflix says you don't need to do anything to continue your memberships for both unlimited streaming and unlimited DVDs. Well, I maybe didn't need to do anything, but I did. I rarely use the streaming service because I prefer the freedom of location provided by DVDs. For me, the decision to drop the streaming component is easy enough, even though I use streaming once or twice a month. The writing is on the screen, though. The cost of DVD-only plans will continue to increase until it reaches a point that some of us are unwilling to pay it. And for me, that point is pretty darn close right now. Then, maybe we'll switch to the streaming program that will probably also continue to increase in price. Isn't the future exciting? Google Plus is Google's version of Facebook. So far, it doesn't amount to much, and it will be interesting to see what users do with it. I became a member this week, and already my younger daughter and a few acquaintances are there, too. In fact, she was there first. Big surprise. MySpace was supplanted by Facebook. Will Facebook be supplanted by Google Plus? You can see my default Google Plus page on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I have obscured some of what's there, just for privacy interests. And I shared some photos from the Columbus Zoo. That's pretty easy to do. Karen Templer, who I don't know, wrote in a post that was linked by someone I do know, and I quote, In a lot of ways, I feel this is like the early days of Twitter, a world still small enough that you can actually check out the profiles of new people you run across, or who have reshared or commented on your posts, and see if their posts are of interest. Of course, the hurdle is circles. 
I might go check out someone and see only an empty posts page because they've shared everything with circles that I'm not a member of. When Google releases something new, documentation is usually absent, and that's the case with Google+. It's up to users to figure out how things work and maybe to figure out how things should work. Google Plus is using the same model as Gmail in that you need to receive an invitation from a current user, but there are apparently no restrictions on how many people a user may invite. So, if you haven't already received 135 or so invitations from your closest friends, and you'd like to have one, just let me know and I'll send it off to you. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.